Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner back with a special, special, special guest today, Dr. Lee Hausner. So thank you so much for being back on the Money Advantage podcast, Dr. Hausner. Pleasure, Richard. That's awesome. So Bruce, before we get started, what we really wanted to dig in today, dig into today is Dr. Lee has done a tremendous amount of work in the space of helping wealthy families to leave inheritance as well, to prosper and flourish. And there's a lot of problems that can arise when you have families of means that are just going about their normal life and living life, and it can create challenges and frustrations and problems. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk specifically about this book, Children of Paradise, Successful Parenting for Prosperous Families that she's written. And there is just tremendous wisdom in stepping back from what might come as second nature and just going through the motions and really taking an intentional look at how we're parenting responsibly. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, along with a whole host of other things, Dr. Hausner, because you just have such an abundance of perspective to lend to this topic. So Bruce, we've had her on the show before. I would love just to hear your thoughts at the top of the show before we dive into really what parenting responsibly looks like. Yeah, it's um, I, I, I don't have children, but I can pull from my previous career of being an educator for 17 years. And I just happened to be an educator from two very affluent areas, one in West St. Louis County um, at a private all boys school that currently costs uh, somewhere around $30,000 a year to go to. And um, Lee, I, I was uh, in line to start a Catholic High School in Rancho Santa Fe, California, which if you're familiar with that down in San Diego County, at one time was one of the richest, if not the richest zip code in all of the United States with uh, residents. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is 20, 22 years ago. But at that time, Bill Gates had a home there. Janet Jackson had a home there. Phil Mickelson, uh, a bunch of very rich people. And you know, what I'd like to just say from my observation is that most parents come from the idea of love whenever they do do things. Um, and, it, you know, they feel like they're doing something by providing a easy life for their children uh, because that's what love is. And they get very confused because they also have this internal strife among them that says they do not want to do that because they do not believe that's what's best for them in the long run, but they can't help themselves. It's a, it's a very weird dynamic that I found in affluent, um, in those two affluent environments. And I may have mentioned this on the first show. I didn't go back and listen like Rachel did, but, um, what I noticed my first week at the first school, when I pulled up in 1986, in my 1978 Dodge Dart um, five-speed that had a dent in the back quarter panel, the floorboard was rusted out, and the driver's side window was replaced with plexiglass because I was making about $18,000 a year. And within that first week, I get out of my car in the parking lot and Matt Riccadio uh, pulls up at age 16 on his birthday in a brand new Mercedes SEL convertible. And my first thought was not jealousy. It was actually, man, I feel so sorry for that kid that he's not going to feel the joy that I'm going to feel in a, in, in a few years of my life when I can purchase my first car. What does he aspire to? Where, where do you aspire exactly. when that's where you're starting? I mean. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's what, that's the perspective I came from, from the entire time. And, um, it's a, it's a challenge, but I want our listeners to realize we do realize that you're coming from 
what you believe is love, a place of love. But uh, many people, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, thought leaders say, you know, you you have to pick your heart when it's going to be, either at the beginning or at the end, because they're the the the, the difficulties that you you have in your life. It's there's going to be difficulties that you have to overcome and try to and try to shield people from those difficulties may actually be just delaying their happiness further on in life. Well, you know, there are two things, Bruce. It's funny, your story, because the joke used to be at Beverly Hills High School. There was a teacher's parking lot and there was a student's parking lot. And I got to tell you, it was dramatic. The teacher's parking lot was filled with the kind of cars you're talking about. The student parking lot looked like a high-end car dealership. (laughs) Convertibles and BMWs and Mercedes. I mean, and so it, it really is a question of, you know, where is the aspiration? And we also know that having challenge in your life is what makes you stronger. It makes you resilient. And I think one of the real issues of wanting to do everything to make life easy for your kids is that then where do they ever develop the sense of resilience? And the individuals who fall most, who err most in that are individuals who came from poor backgrounds. You know, if you came from a poor background, you suddenly became wealthy. And you're, you know, I, I wrote that book. Obviously, I was a psychologist in the Beverly Hills school system. So I, I think I know a lot about wealth, <laughs> of all, but all different kinds of wealth. Because I've said Beverly Hills is a very unusual district. Because there are really what I call four classes of wealth. You've got first-generation wealth creators with all the characteristics of that first-generation wealth creator. Then you have what I call the trust fundarians. These are second- and third-generation trust fund individuals living on the drip, drip, drip of the trust fund, often not doing anything. Okay. Then we had the entertainment industry. And i got to tell you, the entertainment industry is not just the movie stars. It's the sports figures. It's the directors. It's a industry of prima donnas. Everybody is a prima donna. The casting agents, the talent. Okay. And then I was there when the entire Iranian community left Iran and came into Beverly Hills. So now we're integrating a community that was very wealthy in their country and really didn't want to come here. They didn't say, oh, my God, we're having this wonderful opportunity to come. They came because there was a little trouble over there, and we're going to come hang out in Beverly Hills until it clears up there, and then we're going back. <laughs> okay. So now, And they came with a tremendous amount of wealth and with an emphasis in the community of showing the wealth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what you do in that you know, it's part of a cultural kind of a thing. And I'm, I'm not making a value judgment one way or the other. I'm just saying it is what it is. So mm-hmm. I really kind of like was exposed to all these varieties of wealth. And I think the 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 one of the big challenges, if you're a first generation wealth creator, you knew what it was like to press your nose against the glass and want that shiny new bicycle that you couldn't get it. So now your kid's going to get six bicycles. And when he breaks and wrecks one bicycle, you're going to run right out and get him another bicycle. (laughs) And you're going to indulge with all the things that you wanted to have and didn't have, you know, to make their life, in fact, better without realizing that the reason you got to where you got and you because you had discipline and you took the hard knocks and you were resilient. And when they knocked you down, you stood back up again. uh, You know, you were not a marshmallow kid. Mm-hmm. The marshmallow kids are the, you know what a marshmallow kid is? You the punch them like a marshmallow yeah. and they fall over and they get a hole. Okay. Yeah. So what we're really trying to do is, you know, our children are coming to a very different kind of world. And they're coming to a world where you are, you better have resilience. There's not a guarantee. No one knows that anymore. So the parent, whole parenting model is, you know, how do we create competent, confident, resilient individuals? Yes. And you don't do that by overindulging. And of course, if you don't have a lot of money, you can't overindulge. When you have a lot of money, you overindulge. You can run your interference. You, you, you can buy your way out of a lot of things. And and the end result then is it's exactly the opposite of what you're trying to create. But I do agree, Bruce, that ever, I've never met a parent who I felt 
tried to create chaos. Mm-hmm. They weren't saying, oh, my goodness, how can I screw up the life of my kid today? They're <laughs> devastated. Yeah. And, you know, you're only as happy in life as your least happy child. And that is a very important thing. It doesn't matter if you've got billions in the bank and you're sitting out of that in that drug rehab program, hoping your kid will make it through and be able to live. Doesn't matter with the money. Mm-hmm. Your life will be dependent upon the happiness of that next generation. And, you know, I think that is why your book is so valuable, because there are lots of challenges and problems. And I'm just going to share a few out of the preface of your book, if I may. And uh, these are the problems that we want to avoid. So then there has to be a process or a strategy or a system of putting things into our life to have good parenting that of that creates the relationship for kids to flourish. And so let's start with the problems. You said um, parents attending my workshops or coming to counseling sessions in my office are frequently confused, disappointed, and in pain over their children. They want to learn why their children are underachievers in school, seem to lack motivation and drive, appear unhappy and depressed, behave in a dependent and irresponsible manner, and are sometimes involved in various forms of delinquency or substance abuse. And then you said some parents relate to you that they're still financially supporting their offspring when they become adults because those youngsters can't simply not manage their own responsibilities on their income. And I think that is just a really a really quick way to encapsulate all of the challenges and problems that seem to be hard to avoid, but they're just laid out completely plainly here. The irresponsibility, the lack of initiative, the the dependent on mom and dad, the irresponsibly using money or even squandering money or using it for um, corrupt purposes rather than for good. And so you have shown that it is possible to overcome those problems. And, um, I think I think what you said about parents really loving their kids and wanting to do what's right. It's interesting how so many parenting strategies, especially the the new parenting strategies, all the ones that crop up um, as generations say, well, we don't need the wisdom of our parents and our grandparents. We can create new ways of thinking and new ways of parenting. And, and those are supposedly going to create better, more well-developed and more rounded kids. I think there's a lot of problems with things like grace-based parenting and a lot of the um, the just talking about feelings and emotions instead of really just having true, honest conversations and listening respectfully, but still having um, boundaries and still being able to say no. And so let's just talk about what is the most important thing. Let's start. Let's start there. What's the most important thing that we need to be able to have developed in our kids in order for them to be able to thrive and succeed? Well, you know, whenever I talk about parenting, I'm talking about an umbrella. It's an umbrella of self-esteem. Now, mm-hmm. self-esteem became, you know, kind of the an easy catchphrase of the modern generation. But self-esteem is a is defined. In order to have self-esteem, you you have to feel I am okay unconditionally and I am competent. Those two things: I am okay unconditionally and I am competent. Okay, so everything that a parent does, if they step back and say. Did that make my child feel okay and competent is how you judge this. Now, for example, how does a child develop competency when they're growing up in a very wealthy family and they have maids and governesses and nurses? How did you learn to be competent? You learn to be competent because you had to clean your room and you had to make your bed and you had to clean the table and maybe you helped with the food prep and you took out the garbage. You did things. You Mm -hmm. There wasn't somebody doing things. You know, and young kids can develop, have responsibilities. And if you're in a middle class family, you've got responsibilities because there's no one else that's there doing it. I mean, we have, you know, young kids who took care of their younger siblings. They had to babysit their both parents were working. They had to do food prep. I mean, all those kinds of things are what makes a child feel I am competent. So when we have all these other people around serving you, you don't you don't develop those basic skills. You know, kids learned about money because there wasn't money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you didn't go on a vacation. And if the if the refrigerator broke down, it was the, you talked about it a lot. There was a lot of conversation about money. You know, we can't afford this. And gosh, I you know, you know, I hope maybe you can get a job after school. If you you know, you want money to go out with your friends, you're going to have to go. We're not giving you a generous allowance. 
You know, if you want a car, you're going to have to go buy. You're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to go get a job and buy a car. I mean, all those kinds of things are what made the individual grow up competent, feeling he or she had control over what they could do. If you're living in this life where everything is being done for you, and you've got this helicopter parent hovering, you know, doing the, you know, I, I had parents that say, I couldn't go out tonight because my kid had homework. What kind of a comment is that? I couldn't go out tonight because my kid had homework. <laughs> your kid had homework. It's not your homework. And I said, and if you want to maintain the illusion of your absolute brilliance, you better get out of the homework by the time they're in fourth grade. If you think I could have helped my kid with new math, <laughs> I couldn't. You know, you want and, and see that now that that backs up again in terms of competency about education. Mm-hmm. OK, when you come from a wealthy, affluent family, what do you think you want to do about education? Where's your child going to go to school? Probably the, the very best, school. right? The very, yeah, the, very, yeah. the very best. I want this canal. The problem with private schools and I'm not against private schools. I always have to say this because I don't want everyone saying if you look at the bell-shaped curve, everything's on a bell-shaped curve, and you have a bright child, not a G, but a bright child, and that child is going to regular public school, and you got a child, let's just, I'm just arbitrarily saying a number, it doesn't really mean, but let's say this child's got an IQ of 125, okay? It's a pretty good IQ. Mm-hmm. That child's going to regular public school. Do you think that child feels good about him or herself as a learner? Oh, yeah. Yes. They're in the kind of upper quartile. The teacher smiles at that child. They kind of like going to school. It's fun. They might like recess, but they, you know, they can do their work. The other kids have respect. When there's a project, they say, oh, I want Michael on my team. Okay? But you're from a wealthy family. So you know, let me tell you something. Your bright child is not going to be there <laughs> with the unwashed multitudes. So we whip that child off to the finest private school because we can afford it. What they don't tell you about the private schools, because there's usually an entrance exam, it's not the normal bell-shaped curve. The private school has a skewed bell-shaped curve. Now, mm-hmm. we have one private school here that I'm not even going to mention, but there's a tough exam to get in. So I would say that the lower part of that bell-shaped curve is about 120, and the upper range goes to 185, okay? So what did you just do to that bright child who felt good about learning and was enjoying school? You put this child in that highly competitive environment, that child is not going to feel competent. You know, that child, we've had issues in some of the very tough private schools of a lot of suicide attempts, Mm. over drug usage. Adderall is wild out here in California. Everyone's on Adderall because that peps you up. Well, there's a craziness about that. And so how do we, and here's one of them, and and, and child's in school for 12 years. If they're sitting in a situation for 12 years where they never have a chance to really feel competent, do you think, see what that's doing? Ultimately, their self-esteem, you think you're doing the best. And what I've also said to parents, you've got three kids. Maybe one kid is qualified to go to that school, but the others are not, but everyone's going to go there. I said, you've got three kids, you may have to have them in three different schools. Your job as a parent is to put them where they thrive. And it's, you know... I often tell a funny, uh, in terms of thriving, I I tell this because it was my own personal experience and I walk my own talk. My daughter was in the public schools. And when I moved to Beverly Hills, my children had a right to go to the Beverly Hills schools when I became the psychologist. We lived on the border in Westwood. And so she came in the seventh grade and she was a gifted kid. No, Carrie was gifted and she was in an advanced math program. So when she came to Beverly, they said, well, we had a very gifted math in seventh grade. And they said, where should she go in math? And I said, well, I don't know. She's coming from a, you know, accelerated math program. So they put Carrie, obviously, in the accelerated program at Beverly. Carrie's in that program for about three weeks. She comes to me. She says, mom, I need a tutor. I said, no, you don't need a tutor. You need to be out of that class. You do not get tutored to stay in an advanced class. And it just so happened in that class, we had four brilliant math kids who eventually went to Caltech. And I said, my daughter's not going to be in there. I pull her out. And now the school psychologist pulls out their daughter. Three other parents pulled out their daughter. Now, the reason I tell this story, and so Carrie was in regular math the whole rest of her life. You know what my daughter does today? My daughter has a very successful business management company. She's a back office. You know what Carrie does all day long? 
addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and some percentages. And I say the reason she's so good is that I never gave her a hang up in math. You know, well, could I force her to say, you know, to be tutored in that class, would she have ever really fully felt competent if she was in that class, which was really above her natural abilities? So you put your child where the natural abilities lie. You don't try to manufacture something. Mm -hmm. Because if you do that, do you feel competent? No. And the whole goal is to make them feel competent, and that's how they'll be successful. I mean, that's just one example. Let's yeah, go so back I'm gonna to give... – Go ahead, oh, I'm sorry. I know, Rachel, I'm going to – because I experienced all this. Uh, so, so, Dr. Hausner, where do you draw the line between, you know, that, that push – you know, pushing a child to be all that they can be and then overdoing it to the point where they feel bad about themselves, like you were talking about. The right word there. you just use is pushing. You don't push a child to be all, because you don't know all they can be. You do not know all they can be. And I will tell you the goodies in school are for the kids that thrive. Your child wants to thrive, your child wants to be the top student. Okay? They will work at the best of their ability. They so you're pushing is putting pressure. Okay, you don't have to push a child. What you do is you encourage them, and you have you know I wrote the first book that I wrote was a book called Homework Without Tears. Okay, and my my friend said, "Whose tears were you talking about? Are you talking about my tears or the kids' tears?" Yeah. But I wrote that book because parents were making their kids crazy with the pressure, and I said there are things that you need to do as a parent around learning. You know, first of all, <clears throat> I talked about a designated study time every single day that your child comes home and doesn't say, "I don't have any homework." They don't have any homework. You know what they do during designated study time? Read. Read. read exactly they read we so, homeschool so I, I you know that was my that was my answer because that's what we do too you know so if in fact we have a 45 minute let's say designated study time every day do you think they're going to do their homework during that time yes if not they're going to have to read so we're disciplined the fact that we do what we're supposed to be doing all right now if a child is really struggling in some way i'm not against getting some tutoring but the, I'm concerned that tutors are not there to spoon feed your child. A tutor is there to help a child learn. A tutor is there to teach a child how to fish. A student is a tutor is there to teach a child how to organize their time, not to do it for them. And we have too many tutors that we're like doing the work. And so again, the child doesn't learn the skills to be competent. Mm -hmm. If a child has a learning disability, we have to attend to that fact that there's a learning disability and we have to get the proper medication or we have to do the proper programming within the school environment to accomplish that need. But with that kind of structure, we're, we're providing an environment where we let them become as competent. No pushing. <laughs> so let's, man, there's so, so much to unpack here. And we're getting some good comments on YouTube as well. So I'm just going to um, kind of share a, a little piece here. And then let's take the conversation. Um, in a, in a, we're going to dive into one piece of that. So you're talking about competency being one of the most important skills for a child to have in order to have that self-respect, that self-confidence, uh, that um, self-esteem, if you will. Resilience. That's perfect. Excellent. So the ability to bounce back from hardship. I mean, those are all the things that we want to have in our kids. Now there's a, a key piece that you mentioned here that was basically we need to have middle-class values in terms of having to work at something, not get everything you want, delayed gratification, um, not just being overindulged. So we need that value system in a in a place where you don't have to have that value system. And I think that's where you're being really careful about saying, okay, well, we could hit the gas, but we need the wisdom to hit the brakes as well in this one area to make sure we're not just doing what we can because we can, or because we think it's the potential right way. I think there's always this balancing act of figuring out how do we get the best results. And sometimes it's not all one or all the other. So 
there's also a couple of comments here. Um, My Lee, I think I'm saying your name correctly. So she's bringing just some fabulous um, two, two comments here. Family values and moral values come from home and their parents and faith, not from the school system. So that's one key piece. And then she said, yes, encourage them and surround them with good influence, friends and family, take their phones away, no TV and read. I mean, I personally 100% agree with what Miley is saying. And that's what we're doing in our family because there's so much about instilling values that you can do without letting the culture peers take away or or step in and cause that child to be forming their identity around peers, but really being able to develop themselves and not just have to do what's cool or or what social media is saying is the the way to live. So there's just so much that I just said, and I know we could take that a hundred directions, but how do you find out what that balance is for a parent who says, I don't have to have my children have delayed gratification. I don't have to have them work for anything. I don't have to give them a beater car. I don't have to give them anything, but I can. Where do you figure that out? It's really not so complicated. First of all, when there's money around, you can't say to a child, we can't afford it. But what you can say is this is not how we choose to spend our money. This is not. And I will tell you, the children are going to watch you, what you do in terms of how indulgent you are on yourself. They're going to watch that. But one of the things that I think is really important of families of wealth is to emphasize philanthropy. Because when they see you emphasizing philanthropy, they're not sitting there counting their inheritance. We choose to do other things. We don't choose to, in terms of buying things. I have a real thing about buying things. Mm. When they say, I want, I want, I want, you say, put it on a wish list. I never, ever give in to I want on demand. Never. I'm going to say that, uh, that I, you shouldn't do absolutes, but I would say never. I want this. Well, well, you can afford it. So you know what? What's the big deal? I'll get them that. No. I want goes on a wish list and we visit the wish list, uh, maybe on a birthday or a holiday, or maybe a child did something really wonderful. You went away for a vacation. When you came back, the whoever was taking care of your children said, you know, Michael was so great to his sister. He was so helpful. You say, Michael, you earned the right to go to the wish list. Okay. Now we're earning the right to do that. Um, but we do not indulge upon demand. Now that is one thing that parents, I can afford to do it. So why shouldn't I do it? Why shouldn't you do it? Because we don't have delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. What's the importance of delayed gratification? Anybody that ever achieved, you know, I speak a lot to, in, I'm, I'm very, in the family business succession is a big part of my practice. So I'm speaking to entrepreneurs who created businesses. And when I do that, I walk out in, into the audience and I would I'd say, you know, tell me about your business. And they tell me about your business and what's it like, blah, blah, blah. I said, um, how long were you nervous about it? A good entrepreneur would say, until the day I sold it. Okay? I'm so, still nervous. Yeah. The, the person went into this business and worked under stress and didn't give up and didn't walk away <laughs> and made it successful. So, but when you overindulge, when the going gets tough, they go shopping. It's that simple. They don't stick with the task. They try this and it was too hard and they drop out and they try this and they drop out. And so what they become is grazers in life. Mm -hmm. And where you really build self-esteem is when you step back and say, look at what I did. And when you accomplish something, it isn't always easy at the beginning. Yeah. You know, you have to stick with that tough, frustrating, aggravating. You may not get it, you know, in chemistry and it's hard and I can't get it. But you stick with it and suddenly the light opens up and you say, wow, look what I did. Mm -hmm. It's always about letting them find out what they can achieve. So even though you can make it easy for them, every time you make it easy for them, you take away an opportunity to build resilience. That's how uh, I want people to think about it. When you make it easy, how are they going to be resilient? You know what I think is really important about what you just said is that it can be easy to think about money or the op or having money as this opportunity to be able to buy all the things that we think are going to satisfy and fulfill and make us happy. But first of all, those things never do because we buy the thing that we thought we wanted that was going to 
you know, make our life amazing. And the one thing that we wanted, we buy that and we're like, well, we're actually just exactly the same as we were before we purchased that thing. And now we want a bigger thing. And we realize that that's a vicious cycle, but we can look at that and say, okay, well, that's consumption only. That is just purchasing or lifestyle expenses. That's consumption in nature. But if we look at the other side of wealth, the production or the creation, the wealth creation side of money, then you have to think differently. It's not just about now, what can I do with the money that I have? It's how do I create it in the first place? And what I'm hearing you say is that the entrepreneur is having to think about how do I serve people? How do I make this successful? How do I have the right chemistry with people? How do I have the right messaging? How do I serve people? Well, how do I delay Rachel, it's delaying gratification. Yeah. It's I'm going to delay gratification. I'm going to stick with something and I'm going to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. because at the end I'm going I'm going to I'm going to follow through with it. Now, I'll tell you where I where I want you to spend money on experiences. Yeah. Spend money on experiences. Travel. Give them educational programs. Let them take dance. Let them take music. Let them it, I I don't care how much money I don't care how much money you're spending on experiences that build an awareness, that build self confidence, that build a skill. You know that this and that's one of the great things that wealth does. It permits you to build these amazing experiences, like travel experiences, or sending your kid abroad to camp, or you know those kinds of things. All that does is enrich their lives. It's not a thing. And it's not something that makes life easy for them. It's something that adds to their ability to deal with this larger world. Ah, uh, okay. So with that, I know you have, you, we talked about this last time when you were on the podcast about six months ago, but you also have done work with Jay Hughes, who has defined wealth or true wealth as human flourishing, but it's these five different areas of flourishing. So there's financial capital, there's there's human, there's intellectual, there's social, and there's financial. I have four. I this because I put the spiritual capital and human capital. So I talk about four capitals. I talk about human, intellectual, financial, and social capital. Those are the Uh, pillars of healthy families. And they're the pillars of successful multi-generational families that are always looking to build those four pillars. So there is a wealth pillar. Yes. But as you're saying, you're building experiences, which then is building the personal capital or the the human capital. I keep calling it personal, but it's that human capital side where you're developing the person and you're allowing them to have better quality social capital as well, because they're being in connection with people who can also help them go places and do things. And they can collaborate with people that are also going places and doing things. So what you're talking about is building the other forms of wealth as well, not just having money to buy stuff it's the buying the stuff it's the you know it's the idea even with wealth the one thing when i'm working with these large families i'm really talking about how do we get an attitude of stewardship rather than consumership particularly for the next generation that didn't make the wealth okay if you made the wealth i got you know you can go spend it however you want to spend it but when you but when it's passive wealth you have to be really careful about that because now it's about stewardship mm-hmm. and the role is not to consume it because you didn't make it, but to steward it, to use some of those resources, but to steward it. So a next generation has that same safety net. I want you to look at that wealth when you're talking about generation two and three and four as a safety net. It's a fabulous safety net that you've got that other people won't have, but it's only a safety net. It's not the net. It's not the, it's not the end all be all. And you said something really key that in order for you to create that safety net, because you have the ability to create that safety net for generations three and four and beyond, in order to do that, generation two that you're parenting has to be a steward of the wealth, not just a consumer. Otherwise, or you put your wealth in a dynasty trust, mm. <laughs> which, which yes. provides, you know, resources for multi generations. Mm, that's excellent. And I was actually in listening back to your last, the last conversation we had with you, you mentioned um, having, um, well, I just lost my train of thought, but this idea of, of having capital that, oh, oh, passive wealth, your title of passive wealth. Can you explain what you mean by that passive wealth that you're handing to your children? 
Passive wealth is wealth that your kids are going to inherit. That's passive. They didn't earn it. It came through an inheritance. And that's what I call passive wealth. And I am, when I'm working in the areas that I'm working with, I am really concerned with passive wealth in two, in two areas. I'm concerned with the amount of passive wealth that we are transferring to any one individual. And then I, and the timing of the passive wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when, when a 21 year old is going to get a major inheritance, after the motivation to really be creative on their own, get seriously compromised. So I am very careful when I'm working with families or structuring about what we're doing with this passive wealth, how much and when. Mm-hmm. There's certain trigger points that I certainly let passive wealth come out. Education, for example. I'm going to give you as much education a- as you want. Um, there's passive wealth. See, I'm tough with people. I should go back and say this because my, my, my son makes a joke. He says, when my mom comes in as a consultant, it's bad for the inheritors because I don't want major passive wealth before 40. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there's trigger points where it comes out. I certainly all education. I have passive wealth coming out to buy a first home, maybe, you know, a down payment on a first home. I am very big on the family bank where you create a family bank so that when you have young members of the family that are that have an idea and they're entrepreneurial and they can't go to the bank and get money, there's this family bank concept, which falls under that financial capital. Yeah. Um, I certainly, for anybody that's handicapped, you know, there's passive wealth. That's a whole different thing if we're talking about a handicapped child. And then mm-hmm. there's a thing that I call the launching pad. You have a child who gets educated and goes to New York and gets a job in publishing for $65,000 a year pre-taxes, are they going to have a tough time living in New York? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I've got this launching pad concept where our parents can help them when they're launching. They're, we're not launching when we're at home lying in bed saying, I don't know what, I can't get a job. That's not the launching pad. The launching pad is they're actually starting their career and they're really doing something, but you know, it, they're tough, those first jobs. So I've got that passive income coming on on the launching pad. <laughs> so oh, so as tough as I am about, I'm just being thoughtful about mm-hmm. when we are giving money that somebody didn't earn is the whole concept. I mean, every family is, is unique and every individual is unique. And when we're structuring when the passive income comes out, it's not a vanilla folder. Yes. Because I'm looking individually at what the needs of that particular I- child Maybe and where passive wealth will be a benefit mm-hmm. and not a deterrent. Well, I guess tru- so, go ahead, Bruce. The trustee of has to be a very a lot of wisdom. Yes. Now, yeah. Within the trust, there's going to be guidelines, but just like you said, there's no there's no like one game plan for every family. So that. That trustee has to have wisdom along the way. Example, the first thing I thought of when you said launching pad is how long is the runway on that launching pad? You know, do you continue to pay the difference and all they do is stay at the $65,000 a year job for five years, 10 years? Do you say, hey, the launching pad is over after 10 years or do you just use wisdom and figure out the situation? How How do you approach that with families? You know, Bruce, it is really wisdom. And you just brought a very important point about the role of the trustee. Probably the biggest challenge right now among families of wealth is who do I pick as a trustee? Because that trustee does have to have judgment on a lot of things because we're not doing a vanilla folder. We're talking about individuals and individual needs. And if somebody is staying at the $65,000 job for five years, I kind of wonder what's going on. You know, are they working hard? Are they not working? Is this the right field for them? Do we have to help them get coaching and mentoring? You know, what else is going on? See, I, 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 I would let a lot of passive income come out on coaching and mentoring mm. if, if, if that was going to be valuable. Okay, that, that falls, you know, on those four, we, if we're talking about the four capitals, I should break down a little bit what is in those capitals. When mm-hmm. we talk about human capital, this is all the stuff that's in human capital. It's how you parent, how you grandparent. It's how you communicate effectively. It's how you deal with conflict. It's morals, it's values, it's ethics, it's leadership, it's team building, it is spirituality. 
all of that and anything that we're doing to learn and to increase our ability and that that falls, that's a deposit in your human capital account. In your intellectual capital account, we're talking about education and career choices and any coaching and mentoring that we're trying to do to build the intellectual capital and the career abilities and trustee and beneficiary roles and responsibilities and governance. And governance is how this family is going to make decisions. All, everything we learn that falls, that's intellectual. Financial is how we make money, how we manage money, how we invest money, financial parenting, uh, all the family business issues, the psychology of money, figuring out what money is meaning to you, all of that. And that's a whole education process that's all under financial capital. And social is everything we do to make the world a better place. Philanthropy, foundations, DAF, donor-advised funds, public service, you know, everything that you do philanthropically is social capital. And social capital builds all the other capitals. Mm. There's not one great family that doesn't have a strong social capital component. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that you just broke that down into all the different pieces as well, because sometimes if you just think of money or just think about being a human, you're not getting the true picture of really what is all included in that. And you're mentioning here this long runway to have training and mentoring to somebody who is maybe staying stagnant in one place rather than continuing to develop themselves. And I just, I love that what you're saying is as a parent, you're, you're considering not only the maturity level of your child, you're looking at um, what they need in order to flourish and continue developing their potential, but you're in a position that you're not just giving in, you're not just doing what comes easy or what might come naturally or what you can do. You're really- Or what thinking, everyone else is doing. You're not hooked up that everyone else is doing this. Yeah, you know, Everyone else because is there. vision. Because you have vision. And really, I mean, having vision is a thing where you know where you're going, you know what your end goal is, and then you're lining up your actual life to be able to accomplish that end goal. And if the end goal is successful, flourishing children who train their children in a way that they can allow their your grandchildren to be successful and flourishing, that's a completely different kind of parenting than this feels good. It's not going to arouse any conflict. They're going to like me tomorrow. I mean, those are not the right questions to be asking if you really want a healthy long-term family. You know, I've always said that, that the, your, your children need parents, not tall pals. Mm. Now, you want to have a good relationship with your kids. But when you are consistent and you're fair and you're not arbitrary, you know what? Your kids want a good relationship. It is amazing when I first came into this field and we would take kids out of abused homes where the kids were being physically abused and put them in foster care, you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to go back into their homes. Mm. And I would say, what do you mean they want to go back? I'm never going to want them to be in that house because kids want to relate. They want to please their parent. You may think that they're trying to make you crazy, but they want the love of, of their parents. They're desperate for it. They mm. will be desperate their entire life. To hear a parent say, I love you. Mm. And you talk to successful adults who never could get those words from their parents. They are still hurting. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's true. Well, parents would only remember that. They are not, you know, <laughs> kids not going to start loving them because you said no. Because you had limits. Mm. And they were fair and everybody understood them. And it's not dependent upon whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood. Ah, so good. Okay. So in the time that we have left, which we're um, really having great content here, and I wish I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. But so in your book here, Children of Paradise, you really kind of break down, you said a nine-step system for affluent parents to improve their skills and inspire healthy values in their children. And I'm just going to read a, a couple of these because I think what you're doing is you're touching on all of these four types of capital, but you talk about how to make the time with them count. It, how to hire help that's going to care for them while you're not with them. So probably nannies and, and things like that. Um, then you talk about how to avoid pressuring them to achieve and allow them to develop their own interests. You talk about how not to be over-involved or helicopter parenting and allow them to develop independence and their own competency. And I know from really d digging into that portion of your book that you say requiring or allowing them to fail is a a portion of allowing them to truly succeed, not preventing their failure. Um, you mentioned how to listen effectively, how to talk openly and honestly, how to say no, how to teach them the value of money 
and then having a, an effective discipline plan. So I'm not going to ask you to cover your entire book in the next five minutes, but can you just kind of pull out from that maybe some pieces that as parents right now, I have kids 12, four, and a, a baby that is five months old. So, I mean, our listeners are going to be somewhere in these ranges, maybe their grandparents, maybe their parents with kids still in the home. What are some really practical tools that you have for good communication and for good discipline for kids? Hi. Rachel, the communication the communication is this, is this whole workshop. But let me talk quickly about discipline because I think that's a real issue for parents. Mm -hmm. And particularly when you get married, you never say to the other individual in this room, how are you disciplined? So you know what we get? We get one person who's very strict and the other person who's like loosey-goosey. And so the person that's strict gets stricter because the spouse is loosey-goosey and the loosey-goosey one gets more loosey-goosey. <laughs> but my poor kids have to be dominated by Mr. or Mrs. Tyre. Okay. I adhere to a whole discipline of natural consequences. And I think you, the rules are very clear. And when they violate the rules, there's a consequence. Um, and you, they lose privileges. You know, and, and sometimes kids have to realize what their privileges are. I know that when my kids were growing up, if I talked with twinkling the car keys or holding the telephone, I was very clear about what was gonna, what their privileges were and what would be the consequences. You know, but yelling and screaming and insulting or, or physical punishment is absolutely not going to create the kind of product that you want. Now, physically, let me tell you, you start hitting a kid and the kid comes to school with any kind of a mark that has to be reported legally and you are going to have protective services on your door you know that bruce from working in a school environment right especially in california and it's not even a question of you have to report it's not even a question if you have any suspicion you must mm -hmm. report and if you had suspicion if i was working in the educational system and a child came with a big bruise and i had and i saw that bruise and I didn't follow up on it, and it turned out the child was being physically abused, I would be in trouble mm -hmm. as a teacher who saw that and did not report. Mm -hmm. So it's really, I mean, being physical with a child is not the discipline. But natural consequences are very important. You do this, you lose a consequence. You're not going to go out with your friends. You know, you're not going to be able to watch television. You're Give me the iPhone. Give me the iPad. I mean, you, you lose those kinds of privileges, and you don't get them back. You don't pick up your toys instead of yelling and screaming. You know what? I Toys are on the floor. I'm assuming that you don't want them anymore. I'm collecting them. Or we're going to give them to Goodwill and do that one time. You know, the child gets up in the morning and there's a yelling. Well, get I, the car's ready. Why aren't you ready? That that whole thing goes on in the morning. You're yelling and they're yet. You don't do that. You say, you know, you wake your child up. You give them a kiss. You say, I'm going down to having breakfast. I'm going to give you the 30 minute call. And then whatever state they are in, they get picked up and put into a car. Let me tell you, you do that one time and they're still in their pajamas and they have to get dressed in the car, they're going to get ready without the yelling and screaming and carrying on. You have to think, what's the, here are the rules of our household. And so if you break these rules, what are you going to lose? And you lose something that is important. That's the whole theory of consequences. And it's a very powerful theory. If you do poorly mm -hmm. in your job, what happens? You get fired. Yeah. You get fired. Life is about consequences. So, you know, the families that are clear about what the rules are and are consistent and use natural consequences are raising the kind of next generation that we want to see. Mm -hmm. And the kind of individuals that are going to be your lifelong friends, because this idea of friendship, when they're adults, you want that friendship. You're not parenting anymore when they're adults. Mm -hmm. Now, adult to adult, it's a whole different relationship. And even in terms of advice giving. My rule of adult to adult is you never give advice to your adult children unless you hear the four magic words. And the four magic words are when they come to you and say, What do you Mom, think? What or what, do, what should I do? I do? What oh. do you think? And without that invitation, you do not give advice. Mm. I, um, everything, and obviously we can't go through your whole book, but um, I'd like to kind of end today with something I think could be very, very valuable because 
what I've what I've seen both in my past experience as an educator and then now working with high net worth individuals is a lot of people realize that they have spent a decade or more doing things wrong and they now mm-hmm. they've realized they've raised an entitled person and they want to change, but they don't know how to change. So what would you say to those kind of people? Because then, then they don't know how, or they don't know that they think it's too far gone. What would you say to those kind of people? It's almost like a, a 12 step program, you know, <laughs> what would you say to those type of people who have, who have that mindset? Well, first of all, Bruce, I want to say that when we're dealing with individuals, there is not a vanilla answer. Sure. Okay, I got to say that, that every situation, I think probably one of the reasons that I love the field that I'm in is it's never the same. No family is the same. No individual is the same. So a lot would depend if someone came to me and said, you know, I've indulged my son now, he's 25 years old, and, you know, I'm paying his bills and I don't know what to do. You know, your initial reaction is to say, stop paying the bills. So we're going to have a meeting with your son and we're going to slowly wean this son off. That, that doesn't mean stop paying his bills tomorrow, but it means that you have this meeting, you say, you know what, I've been doing this all wrong. We've given you all the tools. What we're going to do is we are going to be decreasing and by the end of the year, we're going to expect you to go to the market on your own dime. That may be one way to do it. You got to take an action, but you you do it in conversation. You do it in conversation with the person, and it's never too late. It's never too maybe, maybe if you got a sixty year old <laughs> next year, maybe it's too late then. But I'm the eternal optimist. You know, I always think that we can change the behavior for the best. But it's a conversation, and it's an action plan. And you sit down and say, "Here's the plan. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's going to how we're going to wean you off." And that's how you make the change. But it's never too late and you must make the change. And I love how you started that by saying, I've been doing this all wrong. That's taking the responsibility as the parent. I mean, that's not saying you have all these problems and you're lazy. I mean, it's not it's not berating them for the position that you have created, but it's taking that responsibility. And that I mean, I think that's truly a mark of humility to be able to say, look, I'm the parent. I didn't do this right. I screwed this up. And now here we are. And I am going to take that responsibility by saying, now I'm going to bear the pain as the adult. Probably the older adult. I mean, we're probably both adults if you're looking back and realizing failings. But I mean, you're saying I'm going to be this person that takes the responsibility and says, okay, I'm going to I'm going to take the pain of making the change. And, you know, one of the, for example, let me give you an example of what, what you got the 25-year-old who's not launching, right? You may say, we're, we're not paying bills anymore. Um, we're going to slowly stop paying the bills. And by the end of the year, we're going to be self-sufficient. However, we're going to get you a life coach. Mm-hmm. Maybe some coaching and mentoring to figure out what you want to do. Because very often, I don't want the parent doing it because they really don't know how to do it because there's a there are skilled professionals that can come in and we're not talking about therapy. I'm not sending the kid to therapy. I want a life coach. I want someone very pragmatically getting this kid on a program. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't want to wall. I'm not wall. I'm not knocking that. I'm a, I'm a psychologist, but I, everyone doesn't have to be a therapy. They, this life coaching is a much more direct action oriented kind of interaction. I'm much more comfortable with that. Maybe because I am a much more directive kind of consultant. So you're not myself. just spending a lot of time talking about feelings and feeling better because we talked about the feelings and unearthing the feelings and going down below them and feeling the feeling. I mean, you're not doing all that. You're really saying, where do you want to go? How are we going to get there? Here's a plan and I'm going to hold you accountable. I mean, I, I think that's probably the difference behind what's happening, right? Right. And, and you have to realize that bad things happened. And when they happen, they happened, and we can't undo the bad things, okay? But we can say, okay, what can we do right now today? Mm-hmm. Where are the strengths and where's the skills we have today? Okay, your mother yelled, your father didn't love you, your bro- older brother was favored. That's reality. Given all of that, how do we move forward? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes they do need therapy. I am not knocking therapy. But I do like with the younger generation, it just can't get launched a lot sometimes a life coaching is a better situation for them. It, you know, it's hard. It is, I'm not saying it's easy for young people now, 
I think it's much more challenging. I think it's hard to get into colleges now. That becomes a real, you know, wait till you go through that college application process. You know, that's making everybody crazy. <laughs> and I think there's a lot more competition. I think there's a lot more uncertainty about what I should do career-wise. So uh, there's no question. That, and and social media is a real problem. That's a whole topic in itself. Oh, about yes. you gotta you got to get some sort of handle on the social media that your kids are doing. And you mm-hmm. have to know what their social media accounts look like. You know, you can't let – you got to be aware of what's going on with those kids. So it, Why don't you talk about that for 30 seconds? more. I mean, I think that's a, that is a big topic and I I know we don't have hours to, to elaborate, but I mean, there's just so much that even supports the, their brain developments, not ready for the level of addiction and dopamine that happens from social media. You limit a time in social media, like we should have limited television time. You know, what's going on. You understand their accounts. You're able to monitor their accounts. These are things that are absolutely mandatory with, with the social media. Social media is a huge problem. Oh, I, I agree. No one is coming up with the, you know, the, the horse already is out of the, the barn. We can't put that horse back in the barn. So we have, yeah. we have to teach our kids what they put on social media. Let me tell you, in wealthy families, we very often develop a social media policy. For example, you may not go on social media and say, now the family is all on their trip down to such and such an island. And now we know that the house is unattended mm-hmm. <laughs> and saying, rob us. Or we know where the family is to be held up or to be kidnapped. Yes. You don't do that. You don't put pictures on your social media account of the Bentley and the airplane and the, I mean, these are the kinds of things that with families, we work out a system about what can be on social media and what can't and educate the kids because mm-hmm. sometimes they don't realize it, oh, how yes. dangerous these things are. Well, and I'm just thinking about younger children as well. Don't understand that not everybody who says they are so-and-so person with this profile picture is actually who they say they are. And when they share information that doesn't mean that that is true. And so, I mean, just knowing what to believe and who to trust is a huge, huge topic. Uh, Miley, thank you for jumping in again. Um, I mean, she's saying so much stuff here. I'll just share because you're probably not going to see this otherwise. So um, yes, see what the kid's maturity is. Yes, be a parent, not their best friend. Kids do like structure. I mean, I agree so much with this. I think that's why I'm sharing. No yelling, talk to them. Um, She has three children, 22, 26, 20. Many too many kids are on drugs and smoking pot and vaping, blaming our government. Don't um, let them on social media. Yes, parents pay for the cell phone and put out rules. I mean, I'm thinking from the perspective that I'm at. Yeah, we there's zero social media um, with my kids. We actually don't have TV either. So you're going to um, have a very you, you're going to know it all, Rachel. You're in a, in a very good place because you got young kids. Yeah, you got young kids, so you can really start to implement this because you're really understanding that the end goal is to have happy, successful, functional individuals. The goal of parenting is to raise competent kids who can successfully make a positive contribution to the world in which they live. That's the goal of a successful parent. I'm just going to say amen, because I want to, I've wanted to say that the whole time. So amen, instead of just absolutely. Um, This has been fabulous. And again, we could talk for hours, but thank you so much for your contribution. It's a pleasure, Rachel. Your interest is wonderful. Bruce, nice talking to you. Have a great holiday. Oh, we will. You as well. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Money Advantage and listening today to this conversation with Dr. Lee Hausner. Dr. Lee, um, do you have any place that you would recommend somebody go to to either reach out to you or to get one of your books specifically that you think would be the most helpful for them? You know, it's probably they can go on the uh, on the Internet. I have if people want the copies of Children of Paradise, I know they're I have reproduced that. And so if they, if they email me, they can email me directly. You can give them my email address. Okay. Yes, we can do that. That's perfectly okay. That's, that's fine. Oh, you know what? Because Christmas is coming. May I just add one thing about. Yes, please do. I had a rule in my household and I've told when Christmas time is coming now with young kids and they're going to get 15 new things, 15 old things have to be given away to kids who do not have them. To underprivileged kids, whatever comes in new, that amount goes out. Okay, oh, that's so awesome! <laughs> so awesome. Oh, have a goodness. happy holiday, everybody. Yes. All right. Well, in closing, if you want to talk about money and finances to get into a position of using and optimizing your wealth, you can talk to us at themoneyadvantage.com. You can book a call with our advisor team, and please remember, in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. 
Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.